Počúvate WebSupport Podcast. Každý týždeň sa rozprávame s tvorcami z oblasti IT, marketingu, HR a internetovej reklamy. Sledujte nás na Spotify, iTunes a Soundcloude. Ak sa chcete zúčastniť na živo ďalšieho rozhovoru, sledujte nás na Facebooku. I'm not sure what you have a busy schedule today, but uh, I just don't want to keep you too long. Oh, that's I'm, I'm here for this. This is good. Yeah. So uh-huh. first of all, uh, thank you very much for coming over. Um, we we had a little chat just before we came here, and uh, we at WebSport we try to kind of do invite people who are interesting uh, in the area of technology and, and stuff like that for our community and for people who are interested, and to have these kind of small sessions to to discuss. And so. Um, I'm very happy to welcome Wes Johnson uh, here. Thank you. Uh, Wes, you are uh, uh, an accomplished writer, scientist, you hold patents in, in many areas, you're a public speaker, uh, and the topic why you're also in Bratislava today is basically space exploration, space entrepreneurship, industry in space in, in many ways. I do have to say that the first time I saw you and I learned about you was, at, was in Las Vegas, in, uh, at Eve Vegas. I think that was, uh, what, 2013? That I was 2013, so. yeah, yes. Yeah, that was good. That was uh, where you were speaking about making a basically internet spaceship game. Like, what of that is, is, is possible in reality? What of those technologies? And basically, that's where I want to also start our discussion because, uh, um, you know, I've been always a fan of Star Trek and of all these amazing technologies that we see in sci-fi movies. But when I look at the world today, we have communicators, we have amazing phones, but a lot of innovation is going to, into Animoji, into um, you know, games, into, into maybe things that don't necessarily move us forward that much, although I love games. Yeah. And so maybe if you could give us your background, why this topic is interesting sure. for you. Sure, I'll be glad And then maybe that. what went wrong, if I can ask that question. <laughs> Well, uh, by way of background, uh, I am a physicist, and uh, since I was seven years old and saw Neil Armstrong walk on the moon as a child, I knew I wanted to have something to do with space exploration. And uh, I, I told the story last night on stage, when I was about 10 years old when I decided I wanted to be involved in, this, in the space effort somehow, and I knew I had to be a scientist, although I had no idea at that age what a scientist did, and I thought you had to have a German accent. Um, and that was because at the time, Uh, all of the uh, German rocket scientists, uh, Dr. Von Braun and his team, had all come to the U.S. And when you saw on TV people talking about going into space, it was all the experts on rocketry, and they were all had German accents. So I thought I'd have to study German. Um, that did not happen. I'm not very talented in languages. But I was also a science fiction fan. And um, science fiction really inspired me because it was about the what if, what's possible. And uh, it reinforced my interest in science and technology. And so I've, I've been very fortunate. I, I was able to, to work in the aerospace field. I do work for NASA. I um, have to be clear, anything I say here, though, is just me as a private person. NASA is not, not endorsing this trip over. Um, but, but I think what you say, what went bad? I don't know that anything went bad. Mm-hmm. I, I think what happened is space travel for people just ended up being a lot more difficult than we thought it was going to be. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it, it looked so easy, but it really wasn't. That was a huge effort during Apollo. Uh, it's very complicated, and uh, it was really almost ahead of its time. When, you, when I've talked to space historians and I look at that moment in history uh, of the 1960s, if there hadn't been the urgencies of the Cold War, we might not yet have gone to the moon mm-hmm. because there's not been a driving political 
survival, you know, competition on Will. a global scale like yeah. that. Mm -hmm. And so it was almost ahead of its time. We almost mm -hmm. went before we were ready. Mm -hmm. and, and it's just been a lot harder to than do we expected. than we expected. Yeah, that's right. But still, you know, if you look at, uh, um, again, entrepreneurship and, and these kind of things where, you know, there's um, billions of dollars flowing into all kinds of crazy things. Mm -hmm. And you know, I think it was Peter Thiel or, or Mark Andreessen who said that, you know, we wanted flying cars, but we got, you know, games and toys and, and not really. Uh, oh, but, but, but I, have to, I have to stop you right uh -huh. there because one of the things that fascinates me about reading old science fiction, mm -hmm. science fiction from the 30s through the 70s, is they completely missed what you do. Mm -hmm. to, to the, the, the computer revolution, mm -hmm. the communications revolution, they missed it completely. Uh, your, your phone is more powerful than the, the, uh, the, co the computer on the Starship Enterprise, right? Um, the, the memory cubes that, they, that Spock had to use to hold a little bit of data, I mean, we, we dwarf that. So in some areas, the technology is far ahead of what people imagined. It's just the big in-your-face technology, which is deep space travel at warp speed, hasn't happened. Yeah. And so I don't think we should underplay. I think we're living in the future that was Already. predicted. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Okay, so what, what is, because in a way, um, for, for space entrepreneurship or for, for people that maybe are in these communities, they want to develop sure. ideas, mm -hmm. you know, what are some of the barriers to entry of, of, you know, of going there? Obviously, you know, because we have SpaceX, or, or Elon has SpaceX anyway, and, uh, uh, but he's all still living off of government contracts in many ways, right? It's not, a pri it's not really a private industry in the sense that the, the, the one who is paying, is not, it's not a private citizen who is paying for a service up there. It's still government. No, hey, we're, we're contracting his services. Yeah, I mean, yeah, NASA yeah. does that. Um, uh, there are some that are mostly private still these days, mm -hmm. and I think uh, Blue Origin would be yeah. one that's coming along. But they're, they're, they're bidding on contracts, and mm -hmm. they're doing commercial work. So... So it's a mix. So uh, how, because the, I guess what I'm trying to say is that, that the demand for these kind of services mm -hmm. for space exploration yes. is not round, uh, right now coming out of a, a business need. It is not. It's, not it's, to, it's, well, we've got to be careful there too, because okay. I think those space advocates, we have to realize in some sense we've already won. Um, mm -hmm. if, you, if you get up in the morning, and I think the BBC did a, uh, a study on this, and, and they did a study of how many times during the average person's day space technology touched their life. Mm -hmm. It was astounding. Mm -hmm. It was dozens of times. Uh, from the weather forecast to uh, your GPS routing of how's the best way to get to work today, mm -hmm. uh, to doing a bank transfer where money is, is actually bank-to-bank uh, -bank transfers around the globe go from encrypted satellite link to making transactions uh, when, you're, when you're getting gasoline for your car, at least in the U.S., uh, it, you put your card in, it doesn't go through the internet anymore. There's a, there's a small aperture mm -hmm. terminal on top of the building, and they don't trust the internet for these financial transactions. They're doing things by satellite. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. right now, what we have as a part of our infrastructure of our daily life, space technology. Mm -hmm. And we just take it for granted because yeah. it's there, right? Yeah. So, so in I a guess sense, we've already won a great battle. So it's a billion, multi-billion dollar industry. So I guess the industry that we're talking about is just bringing things up to space and having them work there. Maybe not deep space in yeah. the sense yeah. that we you know, see from sci-fi, well, but that's kind of the, the nascent industry that is kind of already, it's already there. there. It's already there, it is. Do you have any idea about the figures? Like what amount of business, for lack of a better word, is right now annually. Oh money. well, just the direct in space mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. billions. It's billions already. Yeah. Um, but if you look at the industries that depend on space, mm -hmm. 
it's 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 far more than that. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, in the U.S., we have uh, controlling our train system. It's something called positive train control, and they keep track of where all the trains are by using GPS, and they avoid collisions by monitoring where all those trains are with GPS. Awesome. And uh, the global air traffic control system is soon going to switch over to uh, either GPS, Galileo, GLONASS, mm -hmm. whatever you want to use, but satellite tracking mm -hmm. of the entire air traffic control system. So if you look at how much money is in that, that's soon going to be completely dependent on these space assets working. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's the global economy. Actually, we made our small contribution to that. Uh, in 2013, we launched a weather balloon with a, basically a, a computer uh, and we started registering domains through this, through this satellite. It flew up to, I don't know, where it was 40 kilometers height mm -hmm. and had a connection and was registering domains through that. It was a small experiment, with, but we were proud of it. <laughs> uh, but I guess that's kind of the first industry, right? So we have things orbiting our planet. We do, uh, and we're dependent on them. I, I actually ended up writing a book about that. They're what would happen if we lost them, right? Mm -hmm. and, and it would be a disaster. And they're commercial. I they're mean, commercial. People are doing so it. Companies they're making money. And we heard about some great entrepreneurial uh, new businesses mm -hmm. uh, just yesterday. Mm -hmm. uh, companies that are putting in uh, synthetic aperture radar to do detailed mapping of the mm -hmm. entire globe uh, on, a, on a, a, almost an hourly basis, giving you updates in terms of what's happening there so that people can buy their data. Mm -hmm. Uh, companies providing uh, very reliable propulsion for small spacecraft to do uh, global internet coverage, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. What we're not seeing yet that I think we all want to see is I want to get my ticket to the moon, please. And, yeah. and, and you buy your ticket at the terminal and an hour later, like you're taking off in an yeah. airplane for me to go home, so instead I'm yeah. going to the moon. And, and by darn it, that's what I wanted to have so by when now, we, and, and when we, we don't. So is the first industry is like just surrounding our planet, maybe bigger heights that we're used to uh, if we go further away so kind of our solar system that's kind of maybe the next step that's it, and that includes transport i guess but it's really hard it's the hard. distances are really really big mm -hmm. um, it, it is very misleading when you when you look at the size of the planets and they try to put everything on a page to show you the solar system i mean the distances are just vast right um, uh, I, again i gave the example in my talk if i take the earth-sun distance and shrink it down to a meter, that's really, I'm sorry, I use English units, 93 million miles, yeah. right? It's a long way. Yeah. Uh, the nearest planet is, is uh, the farthest planet in the solar system then is, is 30 meters out, and that's mm -hmm. 30 times 93 million miles. Mm -hmm. that's Can you even far. imagine no. that? No, I can't <laughs> no. imagine that distance. It's, it's, it's it, too, too, too big. And so, but we can do this. I mean, we yeah. send our robotic pros mm -hmm. out there. I, I think we could have a vibrant, cislunar economy. Mm -hmm. It only takes a few days to go to the moon. Uh, there are people out there that are designing hotels. Uh, mm -hmm. Robert Bigelow mm -hmm. uh, has tested uh, inflatable hotels in Earth orbit without mm -hmm. people yet. And he's got an inflatable module on the International Space Station mm -hmm. that has uh, survived and done well for a year. Mm -hmm. People have gone into it, inspected it. And I think once one of these commercial companies are launching people privately, not NASA astronauts mm -hmm. or ESA astronauts mm -hmm. or whatever. So but amateurs, am with some yeah. training, I guess. Amateurs with a deep pocket book, yeah. right? Um, I, I think you're going to see there, there will be a place for them to go, mm -hmm. a hotel. And, and once there's a hotel, there's going to be a need for, well, who takes care of you mm -hmm. in the hotel? But I guess, and and I, it'll go from there. But I, I guess think. that's kind of space tourism, right? That oh, I'm I think that's to the go killer to app. That's the killer app? I do believe that's the killer for people. Mm -hmm. For getting to be able to just go to go once you and and in the global economy today, um, there are a lot of rich people mm -hmm. 
And there are a lot of rich people who would pay to just be able to, to go to spend their honeymoon on the moon, on the moon or wow. in Earth orbit, right? I'd go. There are a lot, right? Yeah. And um, I've met one, uh -huh. uh, Richard Garriott. Mm -hmm. He paid tens of millions of dollars to be a tourist on the space station. Mm -hmm. To the ISS. Right? To the ISS. Mm -hmm. I think he was one of the first mm -hmm. tourists up there. Um, mm -hmm. He was kind of a father-son. His father was an astronaut, yeah. flew on Skylab. So he wanted to have the first father-son in space kind of thing, <laughs> which is kind of cool. Um, but I think there are a lot of people who would do that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I'm mm -hmm. convinced of it. And I think they are too, because I think that's their business model, is they want to tap into that as soon as it's safe. But, but I guess that would be the kind of initial wave of, of also money flowing into the business. Absolutely. In a way. Mm -hmm. But there probably has to be a step too, because at one point it's going to be like a commercial airliner. You can, anybody I will be so. able to do. That's right. It'll so still be awfully expensive. So what's the next step? Is, it like, is there anything on the moon that we might, we might want to like mine or do? Oh, see, it all comes back to that tourism thing. Because mm -hmm. if you have people on the moon, what mm -hmm. do you have to have to survive on the moon? All the services. You've got to have air mm -hmm. and water mm -hmm. and food mm -hmm. and be safe. So somebody has to build the structure that mm -hmm. you're going to be in and maintain it. Mm -hmm. There have to be staff to take care of you. You're not going to go and camp out on your own if yeah. you're paying $23 million to do this. And, and, and water. Where's the water going to come from? Well, mm -hmm. there's a whole source of water at the lunar south pole. There's mm -hmm. ice in those craters. Mm -hmm. So why, why not get it there instead of haul it up from Earth and take it all the way there, right? Yeah. And, and then who's going to do that? Well, mm -hmm. it's part of the support staff. Well, mm -hmm. then the support staff need infrastructure. So I think it, so it kind of builds economy. on that. And mm -hmm. economy will build on that. Mm -hmm. As soon as you, you get the barrier, mm -hmm. low-cost, safe, affordable access to space, mm -hmm. Then you'll have people going places, and once you have the places, you start putting the infrastructure in, mm -hmm. and the next thing you know, you've got a little community being mm -hmm. built. I, I, that's what I see happening. Okay. I do. And it's just, it's going to be a little slower than we thought. Okay, and if we move beyond the moon and, you know, talk about the, you know, the things that people have been talking about recently, and that's Mars. Yes. How is that looking from your, from, from your point of view? Is that something that we, I could still see happening in um, my lifetime? I, th this is a... Uh, at the conference, the organizers ask all of the speakers to give an answer of when you thought you would see people on the moon, mm -hmm. uh, on Mars. Yeah. I didn't give a date, mm -hmm. and the reason I didn't give a date is because if if the, any country, if groups of countries in the world today mm -hmm. decided to send people to Mars mm -hmm. and return them safely to the Earth with a reasonable probability of success, I'm not saying a hundred percent probability of success, <laughs> and I'm also saying not saying it's a one-way trip. Mm -hmm. I'm saying it's somewhere in between. We could do that today. We could do Period. it today. We could do it today. We know how to build the rockets to get people to space. Mm -hmm. Look at the space station for we know how to keep people alive for extended durations mm -hmm. in space. We built landers for the moon. We built robotic landers for Mars. We know how to build something to land on the surface of Mars and get off the surface again. It's just a matter of who wants to do it, can pay for it, and has the... Um, has the willingness to have sustained payment for it for about seven to eight, seven to ten years that it would take to build all the systems. What and, kind of money are we talking done. about? What, what kind of money are we talking well, I mean, about? I'll look into my pockets, maybe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, in my opinion, for you and me, I mm -hmm. mean, I, I speak in dollars as close mm -hmm. to euros, well over a hundred billion, mm -hmm. well over that probably, just in launch and, and, and yeah, propellant yeah. and everything else. But with the cost of launch coming down, I think that'll come down. Mm -hmm. The reason people are hesitant to go now is because if you send astronauts on this mm -hmm. three-year round trip, they're going to come back and statistically, mm -hmm. they'll probably have a higher incidence of cancer mm -hmm. at a younger age because mm -hmm. of the radiation exposure. 
because we can't shield them completely. Mm -hmm. um, they may develop some eyesight problems, as we've recently learned astronauts on the space mm -hmm. station do, especially the men. Mm -hmm. um, they won't go blind, but they might have some eye problems later in life. Mm -hmm. uh, the muscular and bone degeneration, it's a risk, but you can, you can mitigate that. Mm -hmm. So you might come back and maybe have also compound osteoporosis mm -hmm. with that. But when I've talked to astronauts, their response to that is, yeah, but I've gone to Mars. Yeah, I'll take that. <laughs> <laughs> okay. It's a good enough deal. You know, yeah. and it's a good enough deal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I have no doubt you'll get qualified, trained people who are well aware of the risks mm -hmm. who would sign up to go if we decided to go now. And that's, by the way, that is not the opinion of anybody except me uh, uh, yes. based on my 30, almost 30 year experience in the space industry. What's the other opinion? <laughs> Is it too risky today? Or? Uh, I think there are, there are a lot of people at this meeting yesterday mm -hmm. who said it was too risky. It's too risky today. Too risky. That there are too many unknowns what about is, the issues I just talked about. What is about. it about Mars that kind of inspires this, this, both the dreams and, you know? I think it goes back to um, the War of the Worlds mm -hmm. and this notion that when we look up into the sky, what other planet nearby has kind of fascinated us and made us think that there could be other people up there looking back at us. Mm -hmm. And we've always thought that was Mars. And until we actually took pictures of Mars in the 1960s, there were people that believed that there was that it was essentially a, a planet like Earth that had become kind of a desert and that there might be aliens living there. Still living there. Still living there until mm -hmm. we had the probes fly by and take pictures in the 1960s. And there so far we haven't seen anybody people. there. What's that? So far we haven't seen anybody no, there. No, no, it's, it's, yeah. it's probably a dead planet. Yeah. And there may have been life in the past. Yeah. Maybe there's something still surviving. Microbes. Or Microbes or yeah. something there. Mm -hmm. But I think it's just this notion that it had water. Mm -hmm. It had an atmosphere. It, relatively speaking, it's cold compared to the Earth, but it's not that cold. Mm -hmm. If it had oceans and liquid water and mm -hmm. an atmosphere, maybe it had life. Mm -hmm. And that's just fascinating. It inspires. It yeah. is inspiring. Yeah. Whereas the moon, mm -hmm. it's close, but it's kind of a desiccated hot rock, and it always has been, right? Mm -hmm. Probably never had life on mm -hmm. it. Mars might have, right? Just mine, yeah. yeah. And so if we kind of move a bit further out because I'm, I'm a business person in many ways. So for me, I, I, you know, I play, so oh, yeah. astral mining yeah, is yeah. a thing. Oh yeah, of course. Uh, and so is that really something that could reasonably be a profitable business to, is there anything in those asteroids that we might want to bring to earth and, and use as materials? Is that, is that something um, that? Eventually, mm -hmm. I, I explore that in another one of my books, Harvesting mm -hmm. Space for mm -hmm. a Greener Earth. And, and in that book, I we talk about asteroid yeah. mining and the, the problem is early on, it's going to be a lot more expensive to go get it than mm -hmm. what you can sell it for. But it comes back to this incremental approach. Mm -hmm. Because I think if you have your people at hotels in orbit mm -hmm. or on the moon, it's going to be cheaper to bring water ice from comets and asteroids than it is lifting it from, uh, from the Earth. Earth. Mm -hmm. It might be cheaper to mm -hmm. send a robot to take some of that ice Mm -hmm. Have a little railgun to send it on a trajectory that you can calculate mm -hmm. how it's going to go. You grab it at your habitat, mm -hmm. you clean it, you got water. As you do that, you get experience learning how to do it, right? And uh, pretty soon, maybe you're supplying other materials. Mm -hmm. And then you add into the mix 3D printing, additive manufacturing. Mm -hmm. um, if you have a way to use asteroid material and can perhaps pulverize it or separate it into the elements, to feed your 3D printer on the moon, you never have to have spare parts come from the Earth. You build everything. In the you place. build everything out there. Mm -hmm. So I think these technologies are all going to converge mm -hmm. 
so that we might be able to uh, use these asteroid resources in a 3D printer to make whatever you want for your... your but that's even path. further out from Mars. That's even harder in the No, no, no. The near-Earth asteroids. Oh, really? Okay. Oh, yeah. There are, there are a whole bunch of mm -hmm. asteroids. You know, you always hear the scare tactics. Yeah. Okay. My news feed, admittedly, I probably get more space-related topics than most people here get. Probably. Because the algorithms have learned I like yeah. to read space-related yeah. topics, right? So I, I get all those things. And uh, I don't go a week without the Daily Mail having an article pop up on my screen about some asteroid that's going to whiz by the Earth and almost hit it, and NASA's concerned, you know. Yeah. Um, but if it weren't for the Daily Mail telling me that, I wouldn't know to be concerned. Uh, so. Bottom line is there are a lot of rocks out there, yeah. and, and they orbit the sun in, in kind of the same way the Earth does, and they're not that hard to reach. Mm -hmm. They're really relatively easy. So it's closer than the Mars. Even. Oh, you don't have to go to the asteroid belt. Mm -hmm. Not even close. Cool. Lots yeah. of asteroids in the inner solar system. That's right. Okay, and then where the really, when the mind really goes, you know, dreaming is like traveling beyond maybe our oh, solar absolutely. system. That's yeah, what yeah, kind yeah. of we really. That's what you heard me talk about. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah, what yeah, I really yeah, want yeah. to talk about. It's, sure. You know, faster than light travel, and you know, we've all seen Interstellar. We all seen Star Trek. There's all kind of theories and simple ways of thinking about it, but at the end of the day, it's not that simple. It's very hard. It's very hard. So what are the, what are the problems, apart from physics? But <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm not going to say apart from physics, because yeah. the reason we don't have the Enterprise and warp drive mm -hmm. is because it doesn't look like nature allows us to do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, as, a, as, a, as a dreamer, that's a bummer. Mm -hmm. As a physicist, okay, I can work with that, mm -hmm. all right? Because if you, if you want to strictly talk about what nature appears to allow, and I'm going to use the word appears, because we don't know everything. Yeah. And any scientist who stands up and says, oh, we've answered all the questions, 25 years later, they're going to be laughed at and proven wrong, right? Because just as soon as we think we have the answer, we find some bit of data that indicates we don't. We don't. Right. So what we understand now says you can't go faster than light. Okay. Well, let's work with that. What does that mean? Does it mean we can't get close? No, it doesn't mean we can't get close. It just means you need a lot of energy to get, to get close. really close. Okay, all right. So how do I get this energy? Then you start looking at what natural processes are mm -hmm. out there, and you start eliminating some. Mm -hmm. What's energetic? Rockets. Rockets won't do it. They won't get you anywhere close, right? Mm -hmm. Not enough energy in chemistry, breaking mm -hmm. and making chemical bonds, just mm -hmm. not there. Okay, let's look nuclear. Mm -hmm. Well, we saw a lot of energy released in, the, in nuclear weapons, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, can we use the energy of a nuclear power plant? Well, yeah, that'll be pretty good for the solar system, but the energy density in uranium fission is not enough to get a reasonable trip time and speeds to go to the stars. Mm -hmm. It would still take you 10,000 years. That's too long to go to the nearest no, star, yeah. okay? So you think, okay, well, what's more energetic than fission? Well, there's fusion. That's how the sun gets its mm -hmm. energy. Well, it turns out there's enough energy Theoretically mm -hmm. releasable from fusing hydrogen into helium and the energy release, like the, the sun shines mm -hmm. with that, to drive a starship to the stars. Mm -hmm. The problem is you still need a lot of fuel mm -hmm. for that because it, it's highly energetic and, and all the approaches I've seen is you're still burning some kind Massive. of propellant. Mm -hmm. And so the rocket equation still gets you, but it could still get you, it could get you to the nearest star system in a few hundred years. Okay, all right. We're getting there. You're getting there. You're getting there. And um, I made the comment yesterday also, this is a little easier perhaps for a European audience to mm -hmm. resonate with, mm -hmm. because as an American, when I come to, to Europe, I go into the cathedrals like the one here in Bratislava, and I see something that was the product of someone who began 
and probably died before it was completed. And their children's children are the ones who completed the project, yeah. right? So these were people who were passionate about God mm -hmm. uh, in this case, and they started something that was bigger than themselves that mm -hmm. lasted for many generations. So I think we could conceivably send multi-generational How would know, that work? Missions. So you would, you would basically load up a, people on a No, spaceship? no, no. I'm talking about robotics, though, robotics at this point. Mm -hmm. And you send your probe, and you, you tell people, we'll, we'll get our data back in 125 years. Yeah. I mean, we could do that. Yeah. Um, I don't want to do that. No. I want to go faster. Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. So then we start looking at more energetic, and uh, a favorite one is antimatter. Mm -hmm. It's cool. It's got a cool name. It was in, if you watch the original Star Trek, it's what powered the warp drive yes. on the Enterprise. Um, and uh, it's real. Antimatter mm -hmm. is real. It's produced all around us in the atmosphere. As cosmic mm -hmm. rays come in and hit the atmosphere really, really fast, uh, it, that breaks apart those atoms into uh, subatomic particles, and some are antimatter, mm -hmm. uh, positive electrons and negative mm -hmm. protons. And when those, a proton and an antiproton come together, they annihilate and that matter's turned into energy. It's mm -hmm. an explosion. You can tap that. It's the mm -hmm. best battery we have. Uh, it's done at CERN, the European mm -hmm. Super Collider, daily mm -hmm. as they do experiments. They're producing antimatter, but they're producing a very, very, very small amount. Mm -hmm. And to drive a spaceship to go to the stars in a reasonable amount of time, you need tons. And to make tons of antimatter, don't do it on the Earth, because if you had an accident, it would be... Pretty bad. <laughs> pretty bad. Think yeah. Grand Canyon level kind yeah. of bad. Um, or worse. So you want to do it out in space, and it gets really expensive. So mm -hmm. I just, uh, yeah. I'm not sure we're going to see that. So, so the answer that I've come to, and a lot of others have mm -hmm. also, is you take the energy off your ship. Mm -hmm. And you use the infrastructure we have where we produce a lot of energy, and you beam it to your starship. Mm -hmm. And you use high-power lasers or microwaves, and have some kind of a sail system so it, to reflect the light. You talked a lot. Light. I saw a lot of. Well, that's uh, speech, your speak speaking. Oh, I love solar sails. Yeah, yeah. that's so right. Can you talk about it? Because you know, in many ways, uh, it seems surreal, right? Because all these visions of the future, we see ships powered by some sort of rockets or. Uh, well, that, this wonderful blue you know, glow they have in the movies, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Whatever that blue glow is, yeah, is yeah. what propels your ship. Yeah, exactly. I haven't figured out what that blue glow is. Yeah. Yet. Um, and it doesn't. It, it may seem that it doesn't exist. That it really it doesn't may not exist. It, yeah. That's right. But it's really cool in the movies. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and so, the idea of sailing the solar wind in so many ways, or being having energy mm -hmm. being beamed, well, it's, into the sail. How yeah. Does that let work? me describe how this works. Yeah. Most people are familiar with a sailing ship, right? Mm -hmm. And it's on the water, and it unfurls the sail. And as the wind, which is air molecules, reflect from it, they give some of their energy of motion, their kinetic energy, to the sail and the sail reacts to that as the air reflects from it. So when you're sailing, all that air is hitting the sail and it's bumping it, essentially, mm -hmm. and it makes you move. The problem with that on the ground is you're moving through water, which has friction, mm -hmm. which means you're limited in how fast you can go before the friction of your hull versus the water slows you down. Well, when you get out in space, you don't have air. You do have light. Mm -hmm. And light is made up of, of little particles called photons, which I think most people have heard of. And photons are really weird little creatures. Uh, they have no rest mass, but they have momentum. And it's a very small amount of momentum, but when that reflects from a thin, lightweight, reflective material, think lightweight aluminum foil, very, very lightweight. A very reflective to visible light, because that's where the sun puts out a lot of light. The little photons will reflect from it, and since there's nothing out here to cause resistance, because it's a vacuum of space, the sail will react to that and start accelerating. Mm -hmm. 
Well, there's nothing to cause a shadow, and the sun's pretty big. So as long as the sun is shining, you're going to continue to get thrust and continue acceleration. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You can get a lot of speed mm -hmm. out of that. Uh, the way I like to describe it is if you had a, a race mm -hmm. in space between a spacecraft of a certain size, mm -hmm. any size, say this table size, mm -hmm. and you fill it up with a small rocket engine and the best chemical propellant mm -hmm. you can have, as much as you can pack in there, it's here. And you come to me and you say, okay, let's have a sail race this. Mm -hmm. I can pack a pretty darn big sail in here, probably mm -hmm. 3,000 square meter sail. Mm -hmm. Can I, I can get out of this mm -hmm. box, all right? Mm -hmm. So a soccer stadium mm -hmm. out of this box. I, I've seen it. I've, okay. I've calculated. I can do that. Super thin. Super thin. Super light. Existing material. Mm -hmm. I put that next to it. I unfurl my sail, and it's a race. And you say, go. Mm -hmm. Well, the rocket's going to light off, and it'll be out of sight in seconds. Mm -hmm. And the sail will hardly move at all. Mm -hmm. Well, that rocket in those seconds will burn all of its fuel, and it's done. It's mm -hmm. just coasting at whatever speed that it achieved. Mm -hmm. Three months later, I'll pass it like mm -hmm. it's standing still mm -hmm. because the sun will continue to accelerate me to faster and faster. It's a very speeds. different thing, uh, way of thinking about propulsion in general. Absolutely. And what about uh, what people call an ion drive? Because there was an idea of, That's right. of, of being propelled by an ion drive again. The acceleration is slow but consistent. It is. They're very good at what they do. Uh, yeah. Ion drives are used today. Mm -hmm. They're used um, in commercial satellites. They're mm -hmm. in geosynchronous orbit. Uh, Europe, Japan, USA, mm -hmm. Russia have all used them on deep space mm -hmm. missions. Mm -hmm. They are very efficient rockets. Mm -hmm. They are still rockets. Yeah. Okay. Still need so fuel. you still have to have fuel, mm -hmm. and they're not as efficient as uh, offboard energy. And I'll just give an mm -hmm. example. Rocket scientists, everybody has their own terminology for their field, right? Everybody has their mm -hmm. own jargon they use. In rocket science, you talk about the efficiency of a rocket engine and its specific impulse. Mm -hmm. And a typical rocket engine is 350 to 450 mm -hmm. seconds. Don't worry about what that means. It's just a measure of its efficiency, yeah. all right? A can, a, a, an ion propulsion system can be 3,000 seconds. And what that means is it gets about 10 times as much velocity for the same amount of fuel. fuel. It's a much more fuel-efficient rocket, okay? Right. For comparison, my solar sail is essentially an infinite specific ion controls, drive, yeah. compared to the yeah. ion drive, yeah. okay? So electric propulsion is really, really good because solar sails don't work with heavy payloads. Mm -hmm. um, if we want to put a sail to carry people, we'd have to have a sail so big I can't imagine building it mm -hmm. anytime soon. But if I'm taking a spacecraft this size, mm -hmm. I can do that. Mm -hmm. Whereas a spacecraft that has you in it, or you, mm -hmm. and your supplies to keep you alive for a few mm -hmm. years, we could put a whole bunch of electric propulsion thrusters on there and actually get you to Mars mm -hmm. with that. Mm -hmm. um, so it just depends on what you want to do. There's yeah. no perfect propulsion system for every application so far. is what I'm bidding. Yeah. And so for going to the stars, what I would advocate is you build a sail, really good sail, develop lasers that are really powerful, use the energy infrastructure of the Earth to power those lasers, mm -hmm. shine it on the, the sail, and get it going really fast and get a travel time to the nearest stars of under 100 years. And mm -hmm. I think that's possible. Mm -hmm. Okay, uh, we're, uh, we're slowly running out of time, but I want one more topic because, uh, because one of the reasons we want to go out there sure. is, is what we already kind of touched upon a little bit, that what interests us maybe as an as a internalized kind of need to know is that is there someone else out there? We oh. thought some, that it could be Mars? 
maybe it's a bit further away. Um, and so before we thought that, you know, we're kind of alone because we, you know, it's, everything is pretty far and it's, it's hard to reach. But, and we only recently, relatively recently, realized there's a lot of other planets Absolutely, around. that's right. And exoplanets is a topic that you also... But in all fairness, I think we all assumed they would be there. Scientists kind of said there have got to be planets out there, but yeah, we had no the, evidence. The math, yeah. yeah, works out for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so I guess so. But but can you kind of explain to us a little bit how did we how does math work, actually works? Because we now we are finding exoplanets all over the place. There's thousands and thousands of them being found all the time. How does that work? Why why is it now that we kind of see them or can? study them a little bit. Well, it's like any other technology. Mm -hmm. Things have improved. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, sensors, uh, the ability to, to count individual photons of light mm -hmm. uh, is what really has made this breakthrough. CCDs like in your, mm -hmm. in your camera, in mm -hmm. your phone or in your camera. And we finally put into space a, uh, a, a spacecraft. It was the Kepler that had sensors that were counting enough light with enough fidelity that they could tell when a planet crossed in front of a star because mm -hmm. it darkened the light coming from the star. But to give you an idea of how tough this is, the next time you're out with a friend in their car, uh, have them turn on the bright lights, stare at the bright lights, and think how much dimmer it gets if a mosquito flies <laughs> in front of the light, okay? You would not be able to see or tell that there was a little bit less light hitting your eye if a yeah. mosquito flew in front of the high beams because you're basically blinded by looking at the high beams, yeah. right? But we have detectors in space that kind of do that same thing. They can tell when that mosquito flies in front. And as they're staring, if that mosquito, that drop in light intensity happens mm -hmm. regularly every 365 days, you can pretty much be sure that there's a planet orbiting within a little mm -hmm. period of 365 days. And from that, you can back out how massive it is, mm -hmm. how far away from its star it is. And if you know the brightness of that star, you can figure out what's the temperature on that planet. Mm -hmm. Is it in the zone where there might be water? So that, that's my understanding. So you can of, do all yeah. of those things just by that one measurement. And we can see whether the planet is in the kind of right distance, not That's too right. close to the sun, not too far, right. just in the right, but we can't tell really, you know, is it a gas planet, is it a... a not, not easily, not, not easily. There right are some, some good guesses mm -hmm. with error bars mm -hmm. <laughs> around it, because mm -hmm. you can get other data from some of these new telescopes that are looking. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I think there, it's inevitable that there's, uh, there are other planets out there. Um, I get asked the question where I thought you were going with is, are we alone? Right. That was my next question. Yeah. Of, but I, I, you know, I'm as you. I, I, I strongly believe it's impossible that we were, we are alone. I think it's, it's, it's impossible. It's uh, with a caveat. Mm -hmm. and, and and I wrote an essay about mm -hmm. this that's free online. Mm -hmm. It's called "The Aliens Are Not Among Us," mm -hmm. and it's kind of my answer to the people that believe we're being visited, mm -hmm. right? Uh, because when I go out and give lectures, I almost always get that question, <laughs> and so I wanted to have for the record what my opinion on that is. And, and, and my answer to that question mm -hmm. is, I think it is extremely unlikely that there is another intelligent tool using civilization that we would recognize as such that exists right now nearby, mm -hmm. okay? Because I think we, under, under, we, we, we get this idea of deep space and the distances mm -hmm. involved, but we really don't understand it because they're vast, but we mm -hmm. kind of get this vastness. But I think what we don't really understand is the deep time. The Earth's been around for four and a half billion years. That's 4,500 times a million years, right? 
Um, what if an alien species popped up like us somewhere in the Milky Way, and they came and they visited the Earth in its four and a half billion year history? What is the probability that they would come while there have been human beings, which have mm -hmm. been around for what, a little over 100,000 years, Homo mm -hmm. sapiens? The probability is next to zero. Yeah. Okay, yeah. it would be much more likely they came here and saw dinosaurs who were around for tens of millions. But even that would be a slow probability. Yeah. So I think when I look out and I think about the problem, mm -hmm. I, I kind of believe maybe there is somebody else out there, mm -hmm. or has been somebody mm -hmm. else out there, or will be somebody else out there. But the chance of them being anywhere close right now is really really low. I actually studied physics myself. Yes, good. Um, and one I knew of the I things, liked you. It's okay. Yeah, <laughs> one of the things that, that that I kind of realized in the first, I'm not a very good physicist. I I don't have the brain for it. But one of the things that I realized when we had uh, uh, theoretical physics was that um, that we we don't have the brain for the math of how the world actually works in these distances, and so. Uh, we can treat it with numbers, but we can't. We, we cannot comprehend. We can't comprehend it. Yeah, it. That's right. It's completely outside of our intuitive experience of our of the human experience. Of it, it is, and so it's very hard to think about it in this way. Uh, but I think it's natural that we hope that we one day meet somebody. Absolutely. That will be from a completely different place, but will be in a way like us, maybe. It's a, this, well, let's hope not too much like us. I hope they're friendly. <laughs> yeah. That's, uh, but the other thing that yeah. I also took away from that class, I was a little depressed because when I realized, you know, the, the, the professor was trying to, to kind of illustrate this counterintuitive math. And he said that from the perspective of the universe, the existence of humanity is a very short blip, an anomaly that, you know, with the daylight starts living and with the sun it's going to die and it's very I get a little bit depressed because you know it's like our whole existence can be destroyed very easily just the way we were created um, but I do hope that that uh, out there there's more civilizations and at one point probably not in my lifetime but we'll get to meet them in some shape or form but as you said they will probably not be like us in many ways they will probably be very, very different. And, and uh, it's, it's actually kind of interesting, the more you burrow into this notion of uh, what enables our life to exist on Earth, mm -hmm. and the fact that you had to have other stars that had their life cycle and exploded into supernova to get the heavy elements mm -hmm. that make up the planets from which we're made, and you start adding up the clock for that, uh, it's also possible that we may be one of the first mm -hmm. to arise, because all these other conditions had to be in place mm -hmm. in order to have the environment and the material that we're made from, the heavy material, the heavy metals. To be available. And, 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 and yeah. to be available, because in the early universe, um, there, there, all these things weren't there. It was just hydrogen mm -hmm. and helium. Yeah. And those first, you know, first several billion years of the universe, there were, there were nothing heavier than that, yeah. right? Maybe lithium. Uh, so yeah. you mm -hmm. put it all together, but it's fun to think about. Yeah. It's fun to think about. Maybe final question before we go to the questions from the audience. Is sure. That I'll bring it down to earth a, a little bit because okay. we are, you know, in this small Central European country, you know, we, we don't really have a space program. It's very limited. We have one astronaut. And, uh, and, but still, I think there's a lot of people who invest time and effort into this and try to think about or try to contribute in some uh, shape, uh, shape or form. And so do you have, from your point of view, a kind of a positive message to these kind of people who try to invest their time, money, you know, their job, they try to, you know, go to ESA or try to go to the US NASA or to any other company organization tries to, do you feel like we are on the right track? Because a lot of people, you know, looking at the world today, uh, space exploration is not as it was maybe in the 60s and 70s, 
on the top of everybody's head, but now it's kind of in the background a little bit. What is your kind of impression from... from, from well, first off, I'll have to say I was really impressed with the meeting um, yesterday because the average age of the enthusiastic, very bright, intelligent people who participated was about 25 years younger than me, 20 or 25 years younger. And it's one of the few conferences I've been to where that's the case. Yeah. And so I was really excited at that. Um, the second thing is, I don't think uh, this country is a, a part of the EU and the EU funds space development. I can see easily you can get into ESA. As individuals, uh, people here who want to be involved in space development and have that passion, um, I think can do that. Mm -hmm. And, and I say that for two reasons, and this is the same talk. We have interns where I work, and they're young people at university that want to get into the space business, and they're all smart, and they're all capable, and they all want to work for NASA or one of these aerospace companies, but there aren't enough jobs to hire all of them. So what do you tell them? Well, I tell them to be tenacious. Don't accept no. Don't accept failure. I, I wanted to work for NASA as a graduate student at Vanderbilt University. My project, my thesis, was paid for by NASA. The guy at the Marshall Space Flight Center who paid for it, I interviewed for a job with him right out of graduate school. He did not hire me. Okay? So I, I thought, oh my gosh, what's wrong, you know? So I, I took a job in the community. Three years later, I kept trying to get in. And finally, I applied for a job and got accepted for a job. <laughs> And, and so my answer to people like you, you've probably faced failure in your, in your career, right? Is uh, just, if you really want to do it, do it. Um, and if, if, if you want your country to be more engaged in this, do the grassroots thing that I, I saw the folks yesterday doing, which is raise awareness mm -hmm. of, of how important it is. Um, but be aware that it's a very competitive industry and, and uh, there are a lot of really smart people you'll be competing With, against okay. to do that. But if you take no for an answer, you're, you're not going to get off the ground. You're yeah. not going to get off the ground. Yeah. So, so in terms of individuals, mm -hmm. and as far as companies, new ideas that are good ideas, that especially those ideas that somebody's willing to pay for, I don't care where they come from. Mm -hmm. Somebody's going to pay you to do yeah. it if you are good enough to get it in front of the right people. Somebody's going to pay for it. Somebody, if and it's a good that, idea, if it's a truly yeah, good idea yeah. and it's truly a revolutionary money-making idea, mm -hmm. those don't die. Yeah. yeah. All right, then I thank you for this. And I would uh, you know, ask the audience if anybody has any questions for us. If you, I don't know whether we have microphones, but I think there's a small room. So if you want to have a, ask a question now is, a, is the time. I have a couple more, but uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, thank you very much for a really interesting talk. Um, I'd like to ask about, so the current goals of NASA are, of course, uh, sending people to Mars, maybe build a base on the moon, but there are also some intermediate goals, and one of them is the Deep Space Gateway Station. And this station, which is supposed to be built in between the like, moon and like, cislunar space, is also facing a lot of criticism. Uh, I know I realize that you're like part of an organization like NASA, but I would like to uh, get as uh, personal opinions you can give. I, I, I'm not going to be able to answer that. And the reason is, is, is because I'm really here as an author okay. and, and a, a scientist and a futurist. And I do work for NASA. But just to, to let you know, to get nobody censors my writing. I, mm -hmm. I write science fiction novels. They're published. But I actually have to go and get permission from my employer to do to that. Yeah. And, and one of the conditions they lay on me is that when you're doing this and you're not doing it for NASA, don't comment on anything related to NASA policy. And so I, I have to stay away from that question. Not because I disagree with it or agree with it. It's just I have to protect, 
Bottom line is I have to protect my job. Yeah. <laughs> the rules are rules. Many people say that actually like it prevents us from reaching those two long-term goals faster, but I accept. We can't answer. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, Any other questions? So what, maybe one from me again. Oh, there was a question. Oh, is yeah. there a question? I was going to reformulate the follow-up question. Uh-oh. <laughs> Don't do that to me. No. Yeah. <laughs> I'll give you, the, I'm going to, I'm going to reformulate your question, <laughs> which was a reformulation of this gentleman's question. And it's one I answered last night. If, if someone were to say, Les, what do you think we ought to be doing? I would say what we ought to be doing is focusing on learning how to build economical space solar power stations mm -hmm. to provide power on demand anywhere on the planet that's green. And I would work on space as a resource base and uh, the method I described last night for shading the planet uh, to help protect from climate change. Um, and I would personally postpone uh, big Mars or moon endeavors until we solve some problems using space that are major problems we're facing here on Earth. Um, that, that would be, if I, Les Johnson, futurist, whatever, that's what I would do. Um, so I, Sorry, I reformulated <laughs> your question again and didn't answer it. It so. was the perfect answer. Yeah. I was wondering, I was just based on what you just said, uh, maybe like looking back in the past, do you feel like maybe when you have more ambitious goals, you solve the smaller problems, for example, like the ones you just mentioned, faster when your goals are like completely out of the whack, rather than focusing on let's say, global warming or energy, maybe... You haven't heard my solutions. Um, <laughs> they are pretty aggressive solutions. Um, because what, as, as a, and, and I'm not going to give my whole lecture from last night, but as a solar sail advocate and, and been working on solar sails, I, I, some work from some researchers in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, came to my attention about where they were talking about putting a flotilla, thousands of kilometer-sized solar sails at the Earth-Sun L1 region, which is a region of space that is, if you with a little bit of thrust, you can always stay there as the Earth orbits the Sun, and something will stay there between you and the Sun to block a little bit of light from reaching the Earth, which means you don't put as much heat energy into the atmosphere, which will give us more mm -hmm. time to get on renewable energy to, to mitigate what I think is an impending crisis with climate change. Uh, building thousands of kilometer scale sails is an incredibly ambitious goal, okay? But as we, we're working on that goal, I think one of the things that will enable it is that we'll finally realize, well, wait a minute, it's more efficient to make these in space. And mm -hmm. suddenly we're developing the infrastructure to help save the planet, which is also going to be the infrastructure that takes us to Mars and beyond. So I agree with you, uh, and I think... Uh, my ambitious goal actually is intended to do that very thing because I think by having that as a goal and it's such an important goal for our species and for life on earth that it would spur us to do those things so that's what you would get if I were in charge <laughs> I think that was a question yeah? yes uh, I was going to ask is it possible for foreign people to get a job at NASA because I know let's say uh, SpaceX only hires uh, American citizens so um, I am not in the human resources department, but I will tell you that, that I've worked with um, people from other countries and almost always they have to work through our contractor network. 
as opposed to working for NASA. Um, the exception to that might be at NASA's Jet, Jet Propulsion Laboratory, and I'll say maybe, because they are run by, the, I believe, the University of California system. They're not government employees. Mm -hmm. And they may have different rules about green cards and, and things like that. But I don't believe you can actually be a NASA civil servant unless you're a U.S. citizen. I think that's the case. We have time for two more questions, so choose your questions wisely. Yeah. <laughs> um, you were comparing the chemical rockets and the solar sails and the ion engines. Yes. Uh, how about the nuclear propulsion systems like Basinger and so on? Where do they fit there? Is there, is there a way to go, in your opinion? Uh, well, it depends, on again, what you want to do. Um, I'm Mars. familiar with Vasor. If you want to go to Mars... And back. Okay, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, if you want to go to Mars and send uh, a small payload of medicine to an astronaut who's there who's got a disease that has to be cured by it and she has to, he or she has to get the medicine in 30 days. You want my laser sail infrastructure to take a small payload to Mars rapidly, okay? If you're the person, if you are wanting to send a doctor who knows how to do the surgery to, to cure, cure that person, you want to use uh, a Vasmer or a nuclear rocket because it's twice as efficient as a chemical rocket and has high thrust, which means you can move big payloads, mm -hmm. heavy stuff, which, no offense to anybody here, is us mm -hmm. and the supplies that we need, right? And if you are sending food and just general supplies and you don't really care how long it takes to get there, but you want to do it as low cost and efficiently as possible, so it's fairly mm -hmm. heavy, not as heavy as people, then you use the electric thrusters mm -hmm. because it's pretty, pretty much optimized for that mass range and trip time. So there is no one answer for every scenario that I can give you. It, it depends on what you want to do. And then you pull out your catalog of options and find the right one for that. Thank you. One more question, anybody? I have one. Oh, no, sorry. Okay, I'll ask him it's separately. A personal question, <laughs> sorry if I may. I'll let you know after you've asked. <laughs> Yes. My question would be, with all your knowledge, with all your experience in life, do you believe in God? And if yes, what are your reasons for that? I am a Christian and I am absolutely convinced that there is a meaning to my life and that there is a purpose to our existence and why things are the way they are. And that uh, my study of physics and space science has only affirmed that belief. Uh, because I uh, read uh, in, in the Bible, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the more I study physics from the very small to the very large, the more incredible that God is. And so uh, I think our existence in this universe and our ability to conceptualize and study the handiwork. I, you mentioned math. Um, philosophically, I'm sorry, I'm going to take a slight turn. Go for it. Hands. Have you ever wondered why math works, right? Math isn't real. Math is created here, and we use it to approximate how the universe appears to work. How is it that we have a brain that can do that, right? To come up with this abstraction, whatever. I could go on for, I, have, I could give a whole lecture on this topic. <laughs> but, the, but the answer to that question is, for me, physics and space and the universe affirms my Christian faith, 100%. I may just follow up with you. you didn't know you were opening a can of worms Sorry? there, did you? 
super mind blowing in your life that actually like convinced you <laughs> in that it is no no my my uh, my um, affirmation of I was raised in a Christian home but I would not say I was really a, a, a Christian until I, I made that commitment myself and I would say it was a gradual thing there was no um, I didn't have a, I didn't have the the Paul on the road to Damascus mm-hmm. you know miraculous event happen um, it, it's been a, it's a gradual thing for me over my life yeah all right you, you didn't that. expect that question no I did not expect <laughs> that question no it was one of those but it's good yeah uh, so again Les thank you very much for for sitting with me and talking sure. about these amazing things thank you for visiting thanks Bratislava. for having me oh it's been a wonderful trip and it's a beautiful yeah, country we wish yeah. you absolutely all the best we're gonna follow you where, where you know wherever you go and Hopefully, read your books and all that stuff. Yeah, please read my books. I have to give yeah, a yeah. plug. My, uh, my latest two books. One is a science fiction novel. It's a story of first contact. It's called Mission to Methany. And in case you, you don't know what Methany is, it's a moon of Saturn that was discovered in 2004. It's just a few kilometers across. It's shaped like an, a, an egg. It's white and fluffy looking and is the least dense moon in the solar system which for planetary scientists get real excited about what's in there and how is it put together. But the science fiction writer in me says, wait a minute, if it's not very dense, it must be hollow and there must have been aliens in there who brought it here. <laughs> so how did that happen, yeah. right? So in the science fiction novel, I try to, try to answer that. And then my other book that came out at the same time is, is a nonfiction book, which actually has ended up being my best-selling book ever. It's called uh, Graphene. And it's about this new super material that was also discovered in 2004, and the discoverers got a Nobel Prize in 2010. I'm not one of them, right? Mm. Uh, but I wrote about it, and I think it's a material that's going to change our world. What are the applications, just quickly? Uh, I know, I'm, I could talk for hours. Oh, I'm me sorry. too. <laughs> I'm very curious. Like, what are, from your perspective, like the applications where. Uh, because uh, I saw some of your writing on, on yeah. the topic, and, and, and it's. it's, it's it has a lot of uses, but what is in your mind the oh, kind I of think number the, one? The, the near-term killer app for graphene. Yeah. Graphene is is carbon, yeah. and it's just carbon. It's uh, two-dimensional carbon. It's it's a single layer thick atoms. If you studied chemistry, you know what a benzene ring mm-hmm. is. Carbon, carbon, carbon. We'll get rid of the hydrogen, and it's just a bunch of carbon atoms that form a plane. Imagine a sheet of paper, and you hold it sideways, and it's a monomolecular layer mm-hmm. thick piece of carbon. This is so strong, one atom layer, that if you took a really strong pencil and put an elephant on it, it wouldn't break it, mm-hmm. okay? And it is the most electrically conductive material we've found that's not a superconductor. Mm-hmm. So you put those two together, this is really amazing stuff. So I think in the near term, and this is reflected by who's investing money in it, mm-hmm. biggest single commercial investment in graphene comes from Samsung. Now why would they do that? Because graphene is transparent, electrically conductive and really strong. Screens. Cell phones. Unbreakable screens on cell phones. That'll be the day. Okay. Electrically conductive, so your finger can activate what's what's there. Uh, They have, people are already making cell phone cases that because they're more electrically conductive, they're more thermally conductive, your batteries stay cooler. It improves your battery life by 15 to 20 percent. People are making, uh, trying to learn, turn to, uh, uh, graphene pieces, small pieces, to make uh, incredibly compact, high energy density capacitors to replace batteries that are chemical based. Because with this high strength graphene, you can store a lot more energy in a small volume mm-hmm. and release it slowly and make a better battery. So I think in the near term, that's what you're going to see. Mm-hmm. 
I got interested because I saw a paper by a physicist uh, named Gregory Matloff, who right after graphene was discovered said, hey, I can make a huge solar sail out of this. This is the perfect material for sailing. And I read the paper and I realized he's right. Mm -hmm. I've been a solar sail advocate for 25 years, but these big kilometer scale sails, I would look at them and say, we don't have the material to make these out of. Now we do, and it's graphene. So uh, the near term, It'll be in your cell phone. Yeah. There are companies making hiking boots with graphene mm -hmm. enhanced. Eyeglass frames, it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. um, so you'll see it, but I, I'm really wanting to get big pieces, which they don't know how to make right now, mm -hmm. because I want to build solar sails out of yeah. it. So. Amazing. So guys, go buy the book, Graphene. It's Graphene, that's yeah. right. Um, again, Les, thank you very much for no, visiting us. No, thanks for having me. Hope yeah. you like Bratislava. Hope you oh, it's been wonderful. Stay. It has been. It's been and great. And yeah, if you're ever in the area, please stop by. Well, I appreciate the offer. Chat. I have to admit, I haven't been to this part of the world very often, yeah. but it's been a wonderful visit. Thank but you. But if you're around, stop by. Okay. Thank, thank, thank you very, very much, much again. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Počúvali ste Web Support Podcast. Každý týždeň sa rozprávame s tvorcami z oblasti IT, marketingu, HR a internetovej reklamy. Sledujte nás na Spotify, iTunes a Soundcloude. Ak sa chcete zúčastniť na živo ďalšieho rozhovoru, sledujte nás na Facebooku.